You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. In June of this past year, I came across an article by World Vision called Forced to Flee. It was an article highlighting some of the major countries refugees are coming from. This is how the article opened, and I want you to, want you to hear this. Around the world, 68.5 million people have been forcibly displaced. That's, that's the most since World War II. Most people remain displaced within their home countries, but about 25.4 million people worldwide, worldwide have fled to other countries as refugees. And more than half of those refugees are children. Now, not all of these refugees are believers, and they are not all fleeing their countries because of religious persecution, but in many cases, that's precisely what's happening. For instance, an organization called Open Doors, which specializes in reporting on and serving persecuted Christians, offers the following update on the Southeast Asian country of Myanmar. You might know it as Burma. In Myanmar, Open Doors records thousands of members of the Karen tribe, a majority Christian ethnic tribe, have been killed and at least 120,000 displaced. More than 100,000 members of the tribe remain in refugee camps just across the border in Thailand. Friends, while we rightly refer to a refugee crisis, and we should care deeply about the well-being of those expelled from their homes and homelands, we also need to remember that God sovereignly disperses his people and he does so for his redemptive purposes. This is true now and it has been from the earliest days of the New Testament church. One, one of God's sovereign strategies for spreading the gospel to every nation has been the persecution and dispersion of his people. With this in mind, please look at our text with me. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his, speaking of Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. 
I want to focus our attention on four words this morning, and here's the first. Persecution. Persecution. Verse 1 actually serves as a sort of conclusion to the events covered in chapter 7. In fact, go back to verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, speaking of Stephen. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Those who participated in Stephen's execution laid their garments at the feet of Saul as their acknowledged leader. They had acted in a way that he desired. This is made clear in verse 1. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. In fact, after his glorious conversion, listen to what Paul says looking back at this horrific event in Acts 22, verse 20. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving. Friends, Saul's hatred of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ is not revealed simply by his participation in the brutal murder of Stephen. The end of verse 1 says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem. And then look at verse 3 again. Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul's heart was so severely set against the things of God that not only Did he approve of and watch over the execution of a good and godly man whose only crime was to affirm the lordship of Jesus and boldly declare the beauty and freedom of the gospel? But Saul also participated in dragging, in dragging mothers and fathers out of their homes and throwing them in prison In fact, the word translated as ravaging in verse 3 refers to physical injury, oppression, indignity. Picture this with me. The gospel is spreading like wildfire and these new Christians begin meeting regularly in each other's homes. We've read about it already. One night as they meet to study Scripture, sing praises to God and break bread, their door is suddenly bashed in and a wicked man named Saul, along with his band of persecutors, grabs both men and women, physically dragging them into the streets, children screaming, and they are hauled off to prison for the crime of worshiping Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the portrait of what we would now call a terrorist. You've seen the videos of Coptic Christians being beheaded by members of ISIS. This was the activity of Saul. 
He was working to extinguish the gospel through persecuting and even eliminating those who believed the gospel. Now, because because you know what will happen in the next chapter, don't overlook what our text is saying this morning. If you overlook or dismiss the profound depth of Saul's wickedness in chapter 8, you will fail to see the staggering depth of God's overcoming grace and mercy in chapter 9. Let me also pause here and make an application for us. This text should inform the way we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. But, but it should also inform the way we pray for those doing the persecuting. For those being persecuted, we need to pray that God will strengthen them, that he will comfort and guide them, that he will give them boldness to make Jesus known in the face of danger and death, much like our brothers and sisters are doing in China right now. But for those doing the persecuting, Shouldn't we pray for God's salvation to come to them? Shouldn't we pray for God's undeniable saving power to come upon these wicked men and women? We need to pray. We need to pray that God would give the persecutors eyes to see their sin and then grant them repentance and faith in Jesus. We need to pray that they will lay down their swords and and, and pick up a Bible. We need to pray that God will magnify the glory of his grace by transforming thousands of Saul's into Paul's. The persecution of God's people leads to a dispersion. That's the second word I want to focus on. Persecution, now dispersion. Look at the second part of verse 1. And they, members of the church in Jerusalem, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, if you've been paying attention as we've been working our way through this study, the second part of verse 1 should ring a bell. Like you've, you've heard something similar to this before. Friends, remember Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Before the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, Jesus foretells how the indwelling Spirit will give his people power to boldly proclaim the gospel to the end of the earth. It will begin in Jerusalem and then spread to Judea and Samaria. So interestingly, Acts 1.8 now finds fulfillment in Acts 8.1. But how does this happen? How does God choose to sovereignly spread the gospel? I love how theologian David Peterson answers this question. He writes, The story of the gospel's impact on Jerusalem comes to a terrible climax with the death of Stephen and the scattering of all except the apostles. However, 
However, in in God's good providence, this leads to the next stage in the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction about the apostolic witness spreading beyond Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea. Persecution leads to gospel growth. Listen, not because a mission plan is approved and put into action by the leaders of the church, but because ordinary believers take the opportunities given to them to preach the apostolic message wherever they go. It's notable, friends, that God spreads the gospel message by dispersing his people as a result of persecution. But did you catch what Peterson said? Ordinary believers, ordinary believers take the opportunities given to them by God to preach the apostolic message wherever they go. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So this is God's grand scheme for spreading his good news to every corner of the earth. He will bring about circumstances that will disperse ordinary Christians filled with the Holy Spirit all over the place. But as they go, they will tell all the new people they meet about Jesus. There you go. This is God's sovereign plan for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. In other words, brothers and sisters, these dispersed Christians are not simply displaced believers, but they are sent evangelists. They are not being driven to Judea and Samaria by persecution, but by sovereignty. They aren't just looking for a new place to live. They are being sent by King Jesus to declare the good news to people who have never heard it. So, Redeemer, in our own lives, we need to see God's sovereignty as his sending. We need to see God's sovereignty as his sending. And we need to embrace our fundamental identity, not just as believers, but as evangelists. Evangelists sent by God himself to specific places, and specific people with a clear mission to make Jesus known. A few weeks ago, I said the following, and it fits here again. Wherever God has you right now, Christian friend, wherever God has you right now, He has you on mission. Whatever you're facing, His instructions to you haven't changed. Go and make disciples. So if he has you in a new job, if he has you in a new job, it's primarily because God wants your witness there. If he has you in a new neighborhood, it's because someone living there needs to hear about Jesus. If he has you in the hospital, it's not primarily because you need treatment, but because someone in the hospital needs Jesus. Jesus. 
The text makes it clear God is accomplishing His redemptive mission through persecution, which leads to a dispersion, but this is a dispersion of evangelists. And that's the third word or idea I want to draw your attention to. Persecution, dispersion, evangelization. Look at verses 4 and 5. Persecution comes, God's people are dispersed, and what do we find them doing? Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Again, the apostles are still in Jerusalem. So these are everyday, ordinary Christians driven from their homes because of intense persecution. And why were they being persecuted? Well, it was for declaring the glory and lordship of Jesus Christ. So naturally, they've learned their lesson, right? Just keep quiet about Jesus. Live an upright and holy life and let people be drawn to the way you live. And then only when they ask, talk about Jesus and his gospel. But don't ever offer it on your own. No, friends, the title of our study through Acts is A Bold Witness. We've called it this because it's what we find all throughout the book. And it's what God is calling each of us to. Verse 4 is not talking about a select group of super Christians. It's not talking only about people that have the gift of evangelism. Every believer has the indwelling spirit and therefore, therefore possesses everything they need to faithfully and boldly declare the good news of the crucified and risen Christ. John Stott points out that up to this point, it was the apostles who have been given the lead in evangelism in defiance of the Sanhedrin's ban, violence, and threats. Now, however, it is the generality of the believers who take up the evangelistic task. That's a British way of saying everybody. Since the commission of Jesus to make disciples is given to every believer, every believer must be ready to share the evangel, the good news of the gospel concerning Jesus. Do you realize that the Twin Cities will not be evangelized by big personalities, major ecumenical events, or creative programs of megachurches? Men, women, and children all across the Twin Cities will hear about Jesus and embrace the gospel through the faithful witness of wonderfully ordinary Christians like everyone in this room. So think about your relationships. Think about those God has placed in your life and begin to pray. Pray for an opportunity. Look, look for somewhere you can talk about Jesus and, and how your life has been radically changed. And I, I don't know, I don't know who that might be. It might be a family member. It might be a coworker. It might be a neighbor. 
It might be someone you see at the gym regularly. For parents of young children, it's your own children. Think like an evangelist at home. God has given you His Spirit. He's given you His Word. Go and make disciples. And let me say this also. I I am exceedingly grateful for all things gospel-centered. Praise God for how the gospel has been recovered and richly applied to our lives as believers. But could I offer you a caution? Don't just preach the gospel to yourself. Preach it to those who don't know it. Study the gospel so you can apply it to your life. But study it also so you can share it with those who are lost in their sin. As I heard one pastor say, and I've never forgotten it, the gospel came to you because it's headed to someone else. The gospel came to you because it's headed to someone else. Who is that? Notice before we move on, verses 6 and 7, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. We need to understand that so far in the book of Acts, while the Holy Spirit has used the apostles and now Philip to do many signs and wonders, the unmistakable emphasis has been on the primacy and power of the word declared. Even in our text this morning, the overwhelming emphasis is on the proclamation of the word. Look again at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Verse 6, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. Friends, in Acts, signs and wonders establish the credentials of the prophet before all the people and authenticate or verify the prophet's message by actually conveying a partial realization of the salvation proclaimed. This is why the people's response is not to worship the apostles or Philip. The signs and wonders are servants of the word. They point to the message of the word. The signs and wonders are like prongs on a diamond ring that prop up and display the truth of the gospel of the kingdom and the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, isn't it interesting that even in the stories that Darren has shared with us about God's miraculous work among the refugees in Greece, every miracle and every vision has been evangelistic. The end game is not simply a miraculous event, but a rescued sinner, a redeemed life. And that's what we see here. So the people of God experienced persecution. Their persecution led to a dispersion. 
Their dispersion led to the evangelization of their new neighbors. And all of this resulted in overcoming joy. Persecution, dispersion, evangelization, joy. Look at verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Friends, when the gospel is received by faith, it brings joy. When the Spirit of God opens blind eyes to see the everlasting beauty of Jesus Christ, His miraculous birth, sinless life, substitutionary death, glorious resurrection and ascension, when a hopeless and helpless sinner has the scales sovereignly lifted, repents and believes in Jesus, the result is unshakable, irrepressible joy. People living in Judea and Samaria had never heard the gospel. Now they have. And they believe. They now know the reality of 1 Peter 3.8. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. They now know the reality of Romans 5.11. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. They now look forward to one day experiencing the reality of Psalm 16, 11. Because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God and removed the guilt of sin, these new believers will spend forever with God in whose presence is fullness of joy at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Of course, of course there is much joy in that city. The gospel has invaded. People have been made new in Jesus. This is the very definition of joy. To be sought out and captured by sovereign grace, to be known and loved by God in Jesus Christ is the source of eternal joy. And it transcends suffering. It transcends persecution. It's not like those dispersed who were sharing the message shared it in some depressed and dour way and it created joy then in the people who heard it. No, as God sovereignly dispersed his people, they went out with a message of joy on their lips. And it was received by faith. And joy rushed in where there was emptiness and hopelessness. So it's good for us to Remember as we read this text, how did this message of joy arrive? How was it delivered? It was the bold witness of ordinary Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit and in love with Jesus. They arrived and they announced. They arrived and they announced the good news. May God do whatever it takes to mobilize this church to declare the gospel 
so that our cities might be filled with gospel joy. In just a minute, we will sing these words together, and I trust they will be a sincere prayer for each of us. Give us your strength, O God, and courage to speak. Perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak. Lord, use us as you want, whatever the test. By grace, we'll preach your gospel till our dying breath. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. And there is not a single person in this room who would have ever experienced the joy of knowing Jesus, of being reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ if it were not for your sovereign grace and kindness. So God, thank you. Thank you that before the foundation of the world, you chose that we should be in Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for drawing us to the truth of the gospel, for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive the word. Thank you for granting us the grace of repentance and faith. Thank you, Jesus, for being obedient. Obedient unto death, even death on a cross. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take this gospel which we have received and you would put it on our lips. That what we have received, we will now share. So we pray, Holy Spirit, for courage, for strength. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to suppress the lies of the devil that tell us we're not good enough, we're not eloquent enough, we, we can't explain the gospel clearly enough, that if we mess it up, the blood of that person may be on our hands. Oh God, fill us with confidence not in our own abilities, but in the Holy Spirit and the sufficiency of the gospel declared by imperfect people. And then we pray. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as people hear the gospel, they would receive it by faith. Prepare them even in this moment that we might be able to celebrate with them their divine rescue. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.